There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kerminski and Colin Andrews. And Greg, we made a mistake last week. We did? Yep. We said last week was episode 80. It wasn't episode 80. It was episode 79. Ugh. Today is episode 80. Perfect. That's a big mistake. We're numbers people. We shouldn't make numbers <laughs> mistakes like that. But yeah, it happens. I guess it happened. That's right. So last week we had Jonathan Ng join us to talk about estate planning. What are we talking about today, Greg? Well, we're going to continue on that discussion. So why don't we pick it up, Jonathan? Thanks again for being with us. And where we left off last time is we were talking about selection of an executor for the estate. And you had mentioned two critical things of importance in the qualities of a good executor. The one was, you said, be humble. And the idea there was be willing to ask for advice if needed, take advice and assume that maybe you don't know everything and there are some experts that could maybe help you out with the process. And the second thing you mentioned was it's helpful if the executor is well organized because there's a lot of organization required in pulling together everything that's needed to fulfill the role of the executor. So let's pick up from there. What are some of the other considerations in selecting an executor? Sure thing. Thanks again, Greg. Thanks again, Colin, for having me back. Oh, actually, before you get going, I should mention, and this week we have Jonathan Ng joining us again oh. from <laughs> Underwood Gilholm. Jonathan, <laughs> over to you. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. <laughs> so on qualities on being a good executor, another one I would put in, I like to call this the diplomat. This quality is applied often in the context of people who are writing a will and they have adult children. And the common question is, which of my children do I choose? Do I choose all of them? And that's a whole rabbit hole we can talk about a little bit later. Or if the thought process is along the lines of which one do I choose? I think a lot of clients will kind of get caught up in this idea of what is that child's day job? What do they do? Are they a lawyer? Are they a banker? Are they an accountant? Do they work in finance? Do they have traits that would lend themselves to be an executor? Maybe a real estate agent even. And yes, 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 and yes, those are great traits. But here's a trait that you may not have expected or a title rather, and it is the diplomat. Who among these adult children is the diplomat among them? This adult child as executor is accountable to his or her siblings who would presumably be the beneficiaries of the estate. They're in the hot seat. They are accountable to them. They have to provide a reporting of what they're doing and act in a relatively expedient period of time. So a person who is the diplomat among the family has the trust of their siblings is huge. And again, it doesn't always have to be an adult child. It could be a friend of the family. But again, have you seen them in a role of diplomacy? Convince yourself that they would be in a good position there. Maybe digging in a little bit deeper and more practically speaking with respect to qualities of a good executor, ask ourselves, does this person have the bandwidth in their life to do a good job? What does their career look like? What does their family life look like? Where do they live geographically? Are they close to where this estate's going to be all going down? And ask ourselves, and I encourage clients to engage that person directly and talk a little bit about what it would mean for them to take a pause on certain things in their life or squeeze this burden of being an executor into their life and see if it works. 
And you mentioned geographically, Jonathan. So what are some of the issues? A lot of people might name their sibling, a brother or a sister who lives in a different part of the country to be their executor. What complications does that create? Well, first and foremost is logistics. We live in a digital age here. We're sitting in three different places recording this podcast. A lot of work can be done remotely, but there's a lot of work that is very local in nature and is very boots on the ground in nature. So we have to ask ourselves, is this person in a position to, for example, make their way to Calgary on a periodic basis to deal with the sale of real estate, to engage a realtor? I'll take it further. While the house is on sale, while the house might be vacant, if the deceased left a home, are they in a position to personally see to or hire the services of someone to inspect that house every couple of days because a vacant property needs to be properly insured until the sale? So an executor who lives in Sudbury, Ontario could do all those things with respect to a house here in Calgary. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the convenience factor there? I like to put it this way. Are we setting them up for success? by giving them this estate. That's sort of the soft side, if you can call it that. The hard side about having an out-of-province executor in particular is the idea that, or the notion that an executor needs to post an insurance bond if they need to apply for a grant of probate. We might be talking more about probate later, but if they have to go through this probate process, an out-of-province executor is commonly asked to post a bond that is an expense of the estate, not a whole huge inconvenience, but certainly a cost to the deceased's assets and one step that the executive has to go through. I will let listeners know that bonds, in my experience, are very rare because it is possible for that requirement of a bond to be waived if the beneficiaries agree. That's what we see quite commonly. But again, even going through that process, canvassing all the beneficiaries, getting their consent to waive the bond is, again, a couple of week dance that we have to go through if we have an out-of-province executor that adds delay. One of the other things I've run across, Jonathan, and maybe it speaks to a little bit about the need to revisit the will on a regular basis, but in many cases, I've run into situations where somebody has named their best friend as executor, and then they pass away at age 80, and their best friend is also age 80, and not exactly in a position at that point to perform the duties of executor. So talk a little bit about how important it is to revisit that executor decision on a regular basis. Well, you hit the nail on the head right there, Greg. That's probably the classic scenario. We're looking at a will where our our executor is aging, might be sick, even passed away. So when it comes to making decisions today, try to avoid those scenarios. The first one is to name an alternate executor. I know that seems like simple advice, but it's oft forgotten. I'll give everyone an example of sharing here. My primary executor named is my wife. Failing my wife, it's my father-in-law who's rounding around 70, but he's the right guy for the job for us. Knock on wood, he's in good health. Retired engineer, loves spreadsheets. He's got all those traits and a diplomat, I'll say, of Jim as well. But we might not be lucky enough, blessed enough to have his health at all times. So we have an alternate executor named. So if at the time of our passing, he has passed as well, then the alternate is kicked in. Or listeners should know that an executor is not obligated to act. If this falls on Jim's lap through a series of catastrophes and he's not in a position to act, He can renounce. He can give up the job before he even starts, thereby opening the door to our alternate executor to act. And in our case, we would consider naming, for example, someone that may be in our generation or a trust company, a corporate executor that's always there. The corporate executor will not die. They will see to the administration of this estate and they'll do it professionally. I have to tell you a quick family story then, Jonathan. My mom came to me one day and said, I've named you my executor because you're the oldest 
in the family, the oldest child in the family. And she looked at it like it was this great honor that she had bestowed upon me. And I've been around enough families that have unfortunately been impacted negatively by who was the executor and what beneficiaries expected from them. That I said, that's great. Just so you know, when the time comes, I'm going to just take it to a corporate executor and hand it off. I'm not taking on that liability. So that's what you're saying is that you just have some flexibility to name somebody that potentially isn't, I don't know, emotionally involved in that estate. Is that a benefit? Absolutely. It's a huge benefit. We talk about naming family first or trust company and making it seem discreet in that sense. Absolutely not. There are other people in our lives, friends, extended family members who might fill this role. And that kind of touches back on the other factors of personal traits, diplomacy, like maybe a family friend is the right person who can bring everyone together after your passing. And they might have the bandwidth. They might have the relationship with the adult children and the skill set. One other piece, and this is if you want to get real fancy with your will, it's possible to give your executor the authority to nominate an executor. You can effectively pass the buck. You can say, okay, this is who I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose Sophie. But if she's not interested in acting, she has the authority to choose an executor to act in her place, whether it be, for example, a trust company that she's fully gives the job to. She steps away. She abdicates the crown, so to speak. Maybe she gives it to another individual. It's not common, but that's an option that we do explore from time to time. You brought it up, Jonathan, so let's explore a little bit. You talked about one of the roles of the executor is to apply for probate. So I'm wondering if you can just describe what exactly is probate? What's the process? What does it cost? And what does it accomplish? I'll mention first to your listeners across Canada, the terms are different from province to province and state to state, but probate is a common terminology. Different provinces have different names. The idea here is a will, and this is a story that I've told to you guys before, I think, and I amplify it with a lot of hand motions and I use props, but unfortunately I can't do that. So I'll do my best (laughs) with this. But (laughs) so if you can imagine everyone listening, if I'm holding an original will, an original will, this is the real deal. It's signed, two witnesses, the whole thing. That is a valid document. Make no mistake, that document gives that executor the authority to administer that estate. And that document, coupled with a death certificate, in theory, is what an executor needs to prove that someone A, has died, and B, that that executor is now in charge. Again, make no mistake, those are two powerful legal documents. Easier said than done. Those two documents won't win the day all the time. In particular, I'll identify two scenarios, there are many others, two scenarios why an executor needs to take it further and obtain, so to speak, a third document called a grant of probate, letters probate, certificate of appointment of an estate trustee with a will. That's what they call it in Ontario. My gosh, they should really talk to their marketing department. <laughs> the idea here is that will and death certificate just ain't enough for two institutions. Number one, the land titles office. So here in Alberta, if a deceased passed away with real estate in his or her name alone, that executor does not have the authority to sell that property. Not yet. The land titles office. And because of uh, provincial land law, that executor needs a probated will. I'll define what that is in a second, but I want to just broadly introduce a probated will. Here's another scenario, and this is bringing it back to you, gentlemen. Banks and financial institutions may not accept the will as enough authority. They would ask for a probated will. Again, here it is again. They're going to ask for a probated will. What is the bank effectively doing? They're saying to the executor, hey, we recognize that you're the executor named in this will, but frankly, our client, now deceased, has just too much money. Or maybe there are personal circumstances in her or his life where 
if we gave you $700,000 to administer, that might leave the bank in some type of position of liability. We want you, therefore, to get this grant of probate from the court. So there's that word again. So what is this executor doing? This executor is bringing that will to court. They're submitting it in a court application. It's, in my view, very simple. They don't have to appear personally. They file it. Heck, you can mail this thing into the courthouse. So again, the original will is submitted along with about a half inch thick worth of application documents that are publicly available. In those documents, summarize assets of the deceased, marital history, family history, essentially giving the court a snapshot of who this deceased was. And it varies where you are in the province and in Canada, but I'll say currently in Calgary, you're looking at three upwards to four months of processing time. After that period has lapsed, the executor now receives this magical document called a grant of probate. Physically, it's essentially a photocopy of the original will with a certificate in the front saying, this executor is officially appointed as what's called the personal representative. And this will has been, here's the big one, this will has been validated by the court. So with this document, that executor can sell that land. With this document, that executor can go back to that bank or financial institution and say, I have the blessing of a judge to now take charge of this money. And then the bank is now in a comfortable position to hand over custody of those assets. So that's what probate essentially is all about. We were talking about the role of the executor, pulling together all those documents and filing the court documents and making sure everything is done properly. The executor could choose to do it themselves, but they could also, rather than handing off the entire responsibilities of being an executor, they could engage a firm like yourself or an attorney like yourself to assist it with that process without actually handing over the full executorship, if you will. Is that right? It's a common service for estate lawyers to prepare that court application and see it through. I do want to remind everyone that in the interest of access to justice, that these forms are available and many people successfully apply for probate on their own. But there are some pitfalls there in that they have to be filled out in a very particular way. And because I fill out one of these things a week where lawyers are comfortable with the forms, comfortable with what the clerks want to see, and the clerks have a very particular preference. Now you're talking about probate specifically, but there's obviously ways to bypass probate with certain assets. Can you talk a little bit about that, about some of the strategies involved? So when we talk about probate, we're referring to the assets of the deceased. I mentioned in the probate application, you have to present a list of assets. I'll be more specific, estate assets. When I was talking about the house that an executor can't sell until probate, or maybe bank assets that are, so to speak, frozen until probate is granted, These are classically defined as assets of the estate. These are assets, property, bank accounts that are owned by the deceased in his or her name alone. And again, just to reiterate, these are assets that are kind of frozen until probate is granted. Well, there are a whole classification of assets that we'll call non-estate assets or assets outside of the estate that we people can control outside of our will. Think of it like this. Imagine an asset where you can create a destiny for that asset outside of the will. I always like to say, imagine you put an address label on it and you put a stamp on it, but it's not sent yet. So upon your death, that asset is shipped directly to that place. There's two categories here of assets where you can do this. The first one is beneficiary designated assets. And the second one is jointly owned assets. So again, we're talking about assets where you can bypass the estate, bypass probate, and so to speak, ship these assets over to chosen people on death. So The first one, beneficiary designated assets, we're commonly looking at life insurance, RRSPs and RRIFs, these registered retirement funds, and just to keep it simple, tax-free savings accounts. There are others that the listeners and you gentlemen are definitely aware of, 
But generally speaking, these are assets where you can name a beneficiary and it is pretty slick. If you were to pass away, the named beneficiary, say, we'll use myself as an example, if I've named my wife as the beneficiary of my life insurance policy, as soon as she has a death certificate, she can file a claim with the life insurance company to collect those proceeds. And in my experience, I've seen a check issued in a matter of weeks, as early as weeks. It's that fast. No will is needed because by definition, by definition, this is a non-estate asset. This, in theory, is not the business of the will. This is between my wife as beneficiary and the life insurance company. It's that slick. And one can name multiple people. They can say, I want that life insurance split among three people in, in a certain percentage. And again, there it is. Those three will make the claim upon the death of the life insurance owner. And then there we go. So that's beneficiary designated assets. The other type of asset that can be used to bypass the estate and bypass probate are jointly owned assets. So following on the example of myself and my wife, we own our house in joint names. It's registered in joint names, her and I, and we have some bank accounts registered in joint names. If I was to pass, the law dictates that the ownership of our house and the ownership of those jointly owned accounts pass directly to her, again, without a will. Practically speaking, she is going to the land titles office with a death certificate and she is leaving, so to speak, with a title of the house in her name alone. It's that fast. Same thing when she meets with our financial advisor or a banking advisor, they'll move relatively quickly to remove the name of the deceased from the account and then the asset is hers. There are some pitfalls here that I hope we can talk about one day. I'll leave this grenade there and then back away. It's the scenario where maybe an aging parent holds an asset in joint names with their adult child. Now we have questions of who owns that account on the death of that parent. I'll just leave that one there, guys. That is a big one that does come up pretty regularly. Well, Greg, we've had experiences with this where people want to name a, a child on their trading account, Yes, which is a beneficial change of ownership, which actually in theory triggers, I don't know, capital gains taxation and other issues as one. I don't know if I should keep going on with this well, or not. I know you could probably spend another half hour just talking about that, Jonathan, but I do want to just dig into that a little bit. And by describing a situation I was involved in, and this was many, many years ago, but client was diagnosed with cancer and panicked because he didn't know how much time he had left and immediately named his wife as joint holder of his investment account. When he passed away, it was discovered, first of all, this was a second marriage, not a first marriage. And in the will, the proceeds of that account had been intended to go to his children of his first marriage. And so here there was a discrepancy between what was named in the will and the actual fact that the account had been made joint with his second wife and the second wife essentially claimed the proceeds of that account when the will allowed for those proceeds to go elsewhere. I guess that is a pitfall, but what happens in a situation like that where there's a discrepancy between the will and the structure, let's say, of the account? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll drop a fancy legal phrase on everyone here. And it's this idea that a will speaks on death. We use this term. So when we're trying to harmonize what is said in a will versus the ownership on an account, the will tries to say something on the death of that person. So even though a will was written in 1996, it's interpreted as if it spoke the moment before the deceased died in 2021. So let's take it further. You suggested maybe the deceased had a joint account. Well, that joint account originated, it was by nature, it was held with that other person. And the way we reconcile these facts is on the death of the person, the will tries to will that account to somebody. 
Yes. But on the other hand, the account, it is originated. It was created to be owned by somebody else. What wins? The joint account ownership is going to win in that scenario. I would wager. I mean, people take this to judges all the time and judges might have a different view, but based on these straight facts and the way you put it, Greg, I would say that the spouse is absolutely going to keep that account despite what the will says. And I may not have been too clear with my legal fact dropping, but here's the simple way I'd like to put it. The deceased didn't have that account to will. Let's put it that way. Upon his death or her death, it passed directly to the other owner. That will clause was effectively sterile. It had no effect because he couldn't will it. It's like me writing a will saying, I give my 9-11 to my nephew, Isaac. Here's the thing. I do have a nephew named Isaac. Problem is I don't have a Porsche to will. So (laughs) the same concept. Right. And I guess what you've highlighted then is that obviously a lot of people use joint accounts as a way to bypass probate. And I guess what you're saying is that it's not always the answer, depending on what else is going on in your life and what your long-term plans are. And one of the reasons why people feel it's important to avoid probate is because they believe there are high costs involved in getting a grant of probate from the courts. So can you just talk a little bit about costs and how important they really are in deciding whether or not to allow something to be part of the estate as opposed to trying to keep it outside of the estate? Costs. There are two factors, two ways that the estate will be levied here. The first one is court costs. This is where our listeners have to be very cognizant of where they live or where the deceased lived when she or he died, because these court costs are going to vary from province to province, state to state. So here in Alberta, the court fees are, we call a probate fee as opposed to a probate tax. More on that in a second. So here in Alberta, the fee tops out at $525. So simply put, if a deceased had an estate valued at $250,000, the fee will be $525. That's the court cost, $525. If a deceased had an estate worth $250 billion, the court cost will be $525. That's it. That's how it's done over here. In other provinces, very different. The estate value tax will be applied to that estate value. And in provinces like BC or Ontario, we're looking at an aggregate of maybe 1.4-1.5% of the estate subjected to tax. So that's like 15000 on every million. And that can add up. That's quite a lot. So that's the first cost that an estate would be exposed to if probate is needed. The other cost comes back to my desk are legal fees. Greg, you mentioned that sometimes people will hire lawyers and it's a privilege to be asked to help out with estates. What are these lawyers getting paid? Let's get right into it here. It varies. So nice lawyerly answer for you. It depends. (laughs) But some quick facts. In Alberta, it's not uncommon for a lawyer to charge a percentage, levy a fee based on a percentage of the estate. There's a guideline that suggests that the probate lawyer or the estate solicitor for her or his services will charge $2,250, so $2,250, plus 1% of the gross value of the estate. That's not small. What I want listeners to know is that that's optional. Any lawyer saying that this is the rule and this is what I'm entitled to and I shall charge this and sorry, this is what I have to charge you, the court says. So that is, in my view, a bit of a twisting of our guidelines. They're not obligated to follow that. Many lawyers, myself included, will tailor a fee case to case, family to family, based on the circumstances, based on the complexity. One other takeaway I want to put out there, and this is suddenly turning into a public service announcement about lawyers, (laughs) (laughs) is again, if a lawyer is going to levy a fee, especially one in that range, the 1%, the executor is not hiring that lawyer only to prepare that grant of probate application, put together the court application, apply to court. It's a lot of work, don't get me wrong. 
and then of course ultimately deliver that grant of probate to the executor. That lawyer doesn't say, go forth and administer. This estate is now yours. Here is my bill for 1% of the estate. If you have any questions, call me later and it's going to cost you. I see that from time to time. It saddens me. This is a reminder to clients out there and humbly speaking to some of my colleagues out there that being the estate solicitor continues on after that. The services include advising the executor in certain circumstances regarding the administration of the estate, advising on the final distribution, obtaining something called releases from the beneficiaries before the final distribution is made. Remember, you're hiring a lawyer to work with you as an executor for this year and a half, two-year journey, and the fee structure should reflect that. Or on the other hand, should reflect only getting the grant of probate. And that's something that I commonly like to do. I like to unbundle the fee to borrow a term from the cell phone providers. <laughs> I like to charge a single fee to get that grant of probate because that's a discrete amount of work that's asked of me. And then I often charge hourly after that. Use me if you need me. Otherwise, my feelings won't be hurt if you don't call me and I'm not charging you for it. Greg, Seems this fair. brings up a good point. Something we've talked about in the past. Like, are we actually recommending Jonathan to people out there? Of course. Of course we are. <laughs> of course we are. We wouldn't have him on the show. We trust him. <laughs> We've had a long working relationship with Jonathan and the firm that he represents. So, hey, we're going to run out of time for today. I well, can't believe it. Well, but- we are. Well, obviously, this is a big topic. And of course, Jonathan has devoted his professional career to this topic. So not surprising that we can't get through it at all in an hour. But Listen, I think we've covered a tremendous amount of ground. And Jonathan, first of all, I want to thank you for both the last couple of weeks of being on our podcast. And I'd like to actually extend an invitation. We'll give you some time off, but I think there's some ground that we haven't covered, which is probably useful for a lot of people to be aware of, and that's the use of trusts. And so maybe we could seek your assistance in a future episode to talk about the importance of trusts and the use of trusts in estate planning and things like that. So we'd certainly appreciate that if you can save some time for us in the future. Looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. I like how you put them on the spot there. Oh, I know. There's there's no way out of that. Yeah, If if, if you (laughs) could just share, uh, save a few minutes uh, in the future, like maybe half hour to talk about (laughs) trusts and the importance of planning for blended families, maybe just those topics. I do have one thing for you. I noticed in the last few weeks, I always said will an estate lawyer, and I am incorrect. I have become corrected that it's wills and estate lawyer. Is that right? Oh man, this is a tough one. I don't know. I see it interchangeably. I mean, okay, well, I write wills, but I guess I write one will at a time. Gosh, this is a tough one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Finally got one that stumped you. Let me get back to you on this one. (laughs) I see both. I think I use them interchangeably. Generically, the term is wills and estates, so plural on both. Oh, and I was wrong again. Okay. No, no. You're going to have to leave that one with me. That perplexes me. I'm not too sure. (laughs) Well, in our world, it's advisor versus advisor. One, if it's spelt with an O, indicates fiduciary duty, and one, if it's spelt with an E, indicates salesperson. So that's why I was just curious. And for clarity, you are advisors. We're neither. We're portfolio managers, licensed portfolio managers. So we are fiduciaries. So that's how we talk anyways. But listen, thanks again, Jonathan, for joining us today. And we are going to hold you to coming back and talking about trusts and things of that nature. So we do appreciate your expertise. Thanks again. All right. Okay. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. 
To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.